The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So our investment, making an affirmative investment, we're not containing Russia, we're making an affirmative investment in Ukraine, in Ukrainian democracy, we both advantage our competition with Russia, but we also we also have an impact on this holy grail of, of foreign policy, which is driving a wedge between Russia and China, keeping Russia from falling into China's orbit. And that's, if you recast it from that geopolitical, big picture standpoint, it really changes the stakes in Ukraine. And it really makes a compelling case how far we, we should be willing to go. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 6th, 2021. It's a scary time along the Ukrainian-Russian border these days. Russian troops are amassing in alarming numbers, and the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, declared recently that there had been a coup planned against him by Russian-aligned forces. How bad is it? Is it going to be another war? Is an incursion imminent? To go over all the questions, I was joined in the virtual jungle studio in front of a Lawfare Live live audience by Alexander Vindman, who needs no introduction to this community, and Dominic Bustios, a research assistant to Lieutenant Colonel Vindman at Lawfare. We talked about the Russian military buildup, we talked about the purported coup attempt, and we talked about what, if anything, the United States can do to head off a coming disaster. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 6th, Trouble Brewing in Ukraine. So, Alex, get us started. I think a lot of people have heard that there is bad stuff going on in Ukraine, a Russian military buildup along the line of the border and also inside the contested areas. And uh, the president of Ukraine, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, said there'd been a coup attempt. So let's start with the big picture question. What's going on? Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a serious uh, escalation or um, military buildup along Russia's uh, and Ukraine's border, uh, all precipitated by Russia. Ukraine has done nothing to drive this this latest escalation except uh, continue on its way of being kind of a prosperous country trying to attempt to integrate with the West. 
which is frankly the reason that uh, Russia is escalating the situation. It's driven by two major urgencies. One is a need and the other one is an opportunity. The need is that Ukraine is slipping through Russia's fingers. If in 2014, Russia thought it had done enough damage by seizing, uh, annexing Crimea and seizing an additional 3% of Ukraine's territory in the Donbass, it's it's figured out that that's not the case. It's, it, if it had thought that Ukraine was going to be a failed state on its own, that's proven to be false. Ukraine has got a much more coherent and cohesive society. The economy is chugging along. It's growing relatively well. When I covered the portfolio in the White House, you know, just uh, several years back, it was about a hundred a hundred twenty billion dollar economy that took a serious nosedive after two thousand fourteen, uh, and is now recovering. It's about one hundred seventy one billion by some estimates. The military is moving along also. From a relative standpoint, Russia has major overmatch, but it's the gap is shrunk compared to what it was in the past. Uh, just because back then, Ukraine had you know on the order of thousands of troops available to defend Ukraine. Now it has tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if you include reserves. So it's a much much uh, more kind of difficult target to bite off. And while what we see unfolding right now, we could see an, a range of outcomes. And that's what we should think of it as. We could see a major demonstration shaping up, which is basically all of this capability coming on Ukraine's border and pressuring an outcome from the West and from the, uh, from Ukraine. So raising the stakes so high that the, the West puts pressure on Ukraine to satisfy Minsk II. Minsk II is the, the, the like major concession that Ukraine gave uh, in 2015 after that froze the, the war to a low simmer, still violence, but no major kind of military movements. And in it, in Minsk too, basically Ukraine would cede sovereignty over foreign policy to Russia. Russia would get a veto because of this federalized system, the, the piece of the Russia, uh, Ukraine that was seized uh, would have a veto over which direction Ukraine chose. So that's, that's one outcome where there's a, 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 co a coercive diplomacy to achieve a political aim. But frankly, I don't think, short of something that's uh, uh, clear, that you know Minsk II being fulfilled and Russia getting a veto, that's going to satisfy Russia. Because when we started this conversation is Russia sees Ukraine slipping through its fingers. And it really, what we could consider this current escalation to be is a continuation of 2014, which is you know basically making Ukraine a failed state, ensuring that Ukraine doesn't present a viable alternative to the Russian system that the Kremlin and Russia is prospering while everybody else is kind of, you know, a basket case. And I don't think they achieve that through anything besides kind of a maximalist diplomatic concession. So that takes care of the need portion. And just quickly on the opportunity side of the, of the equation, the opportunity is they see a lack of resolve from the West. They see a lack of resolve from the U.S. They see kind of this emanating from a withdrawal from Afghanistan, a hyper focus on China instead of the immediate threats or the near-term threats, three to five years with regards to Russia. And they see uh, opportunities with regards to kind of a lack, a, a disinterest from the EU and, and NATO to a certain extent, and uh, as well as increased leverage over 
the EU with regards to energy markets and energy demands and, and uh, you know, Russia being the kind of the sole source to, to potentially alleviate some of those issues. So these two things have resulted in, a, you know, the, the next iteration of 2014, an escalation to ensure that Ukraine's a failed state, to ensure that Ukraine doesn't spin out of its orbit. Uh, and I think it's likely to, to end up being pretty serious. And we should treat it as such. We shouldn't consider just the diplomatic coercion portion of it. We should think of this as, you know, this situ- this will be military violence uh, of significant nature in Ukraine. And we should be preparing to meet that violence, including taking some preemptive steps along the way. All right. So, Dominic, follow that up with an account of of what President Zelensky alleged in terms of the coup attempt and what we know about what actually happened coup-wise. So within this context, Zelensky had this massive press marathon conference where he invited people. He was talking about what he alleges is this coup attempt that was organized, supposedly planned by a group of Russians and Ukrainians uh, set for December 1st and 2nd. Clearly that coup attempt did not happen, uh, whether that's because of the expertise of the Ukrainian intelligence services or because this was fabricated is still to be determined. But really what this hinges on is, it's a, a big component of it is Ukrainian domestic volatility right now. Uh, there's been this spat between Renat Akhmetov, uh, one of the most prominent Ukrainian oligarchs, and President Zelensky. Zelensky has boycotted uh, Akhmetov's media empire and is not uh, going on their channels right now. And there was also the passage of this law on uh, deoligarchization in November. And both of those things together kind of signal maybe a turning point in a way in terms of Zelensky's view on how he's approaching Akhmetov. And this can be viewed through a couple of lenses. From the more, I guess, positive view of Zelensky, one could try and argue that he's cracking down on necessary reforms within uh, the economic and political sphere on deoligarchization because that is a major issue for corruption and reform in Ukraine and it's a barrier to forward progress. But on the other side, it can also be viewed as him concentrating power in his own hands, maligning the opposition and removing potential criticism or negative views of his government, which has been a long running theme for really the past year as we've seen falling ratings for President Zelensky. And as we've seen really his hold on power kind of get questioned from some corners. So it's a difficult situation, particularly when weighed against the fact that you have this massive buildup of Russian forces on the border. Uh, and then there's some interesting sociological data that goes along with that. So a majority of Ukrainians now, if you believe the polls coming from the Kiev uh, International Institute of Sociology, a majority of Ukrainians don't have faith in Zelensky as a leader during wartime with Russia in the neighborhood of something uh, a little bit above 50%. I would have to double check uh, the actual data there. It's uh, believed. So, uh, and then and that's just a difficult situation to be in considering that he would be the head of state in any potential Russian invasion plan. On the coup component of this, it is not the least bit surprising that something like this would unfold. 
and uh, it could be kind of low level and not serious, but it, it still it still is a useful tool for President Zelensky to talk about these types of operations from the Russians. And there's a precedent for these for these types of operations, um, these intelligence based operations, whether it's kind of a Wagner Gate, this idea of capturing uh, Russian mercenaries that had participated in the war in Ukraine in 2014 and 15. Or uh, really, frankly, this this coup attempt itself, which is, to me, the first thing I thought of when I heard about this was uh, Montenegro. Uh, I, I think it was 2018, uh, 19, uh, I think it was 2018, when they were looking to join NATO. And there, this crazy attempt spoiled by the, the uh, Serbian security services, where the Russians were looking to assassinate uh, the Montenegrin uh, prime minister to prevent uh, Montenegro from joining NATO. And these types of operations are, are kind of notorious and well-established, whether it's chemical attacks to assassinate opponents in Salisbury, assassination of uh, Chechen nationals in Germany. The fact that is that the, uh, I would say the security uh, services in Russia are unconstrained. Uh, Russia is not deterred from using these types of means uh, because of the fact that they've been successful, because of the fact that they keep uh, attention on Russia as kind of like a you know a, a major security player. So the, these are these are likely to continue and to unfold. And you know the, the reciprocal claims of, of Ukrainian uh, uh, security operations or intelligence operations are, are kind of a good useful propaganda tool too. Although frankly less credible from the Ukrainian side than and almost certain from the Russian side. Okay, so I want to. Before we move on from uh, the coup matter, I just want to ask Dominic, you said it whether there was really a coup attempt in the works or whether it was a fabrication on Zelensky's part is, you know, still a matter to be determined. How much do we know about whether there was anything real happening or whether this is a sort of merci no coup situation? So he says there were these audio recordings. Those have not yet been released, but they've supposedly been turned over to U.S. intelligence. So hopefully there will be news in the near term as to whether or not all of that is verifiable and justifiable. Uh, really, the key components is, so there's one side of this that probably could be fabricated and another side of this that, as Alex said, really fits uh, this playbook that the Russians have previously used. So the fact that there was an FSB officer uh, coupled with a couple of former officers based in Crimea who had formerly served in the Ministry of Internal Affairs in Ukraine, that fits with Russia's existing playbook as they've previously executed a coup, tried to execute a coup attempt in Montenegro. The wrinkle in this is the supposed involvement, involvement of Renat Akhmetov, this oligarch. That is not substantiated right now by any additional evidence beyond these recordings, beyond the fact that they said they were going to try to get him to participate. And it could be a political move. It still remains to be seen how that's going to play out. It would be surprising to see what I think has traditionally been a sophisticated actor in Akhmetov make a move like this at this time. Okay, so... Alex, let's go back to the military buildup. And if I were Vladimir Putin, and I believe you and I had a conversation around the time of Joe Biden's taking office, 
in which we speculated about this. I can't remember if it was recorded on the Lawfare podcast or not, but we basically said sometime in the first six months or a year of Joe Biden in office, we're likely to see some escalation in Ukraine or elsewhere in the Russian near abroad because Putin will want to test what he can get away with with this new administration. And so I guess my first question is, is this that? And how seriously should we be anticipating the possibility of a Russian incursion uh, and of what magnitude? So uh, I would say this is the successor to the test to a certain extent. The policy position of the Biden administration has suggested that what had unfolded in April uh, with a significant military buildup and resulted in, in a summit to, to de-escalate the situation, but rather firm rhetoric on the part of the, the president about responding to, to Russian provocations seems to suggest that the, the Russians find you know, a lack of resolve in the U.S. willingness to respond, whether that's in the kind of the negotiations to date, talking about like, you know, both sides need to manage the situation, prevent from uh, prevent it from escalating. Uh, discussions around getting the Ukrainians to to fulfill Minsk to versus really, frankly, holding Russia accountable for continued military escalation and uh, a lack of a sufficient response to other probing types of uh, attacks like uh, cyber uh, attacks that occurred in the months after the, the Biden uh, Putin summit in July or actually in the weeks and haven't really kind of resulted in significant responses suggests that the U.S. is is not particularly interested in or, or maybe distracted. And I think if there was clearer resolve from the U.S., that would start to impact Russian calculus more. I mean, it might not change the Russian calculus, but right now it's it's not weighty enough. I think what we're seeing from a military per, uh, buildup perspective is a, a, a situation that could unfold relatively quickly within weeks Although I think, frankly, there's a chance that this might be delayed until after the Chinese Winter Olympics, because uh, the Chinese don't really want a visual of, of war there. The Russians want to have their contingent appear in those Winter Olympics. So I think it, it could play out in kind of the February timeframe. Not that dissimilar to the way things unfolded after Sochi, like in the days and weeks afterwards, the, the situation escalated uh, into military confrontation the last time around. So. What that looks like is at this point, there's a, a massive force buildup somewhere in the ballpark of about 100,000 troops, and uh, they're positioned south in Crimea, east along the Donbass, and actually uh, points north in, in other major, along other major cities like uh, Kharkiv and Suma, which are in the uh, northeast, and then all the way up to the north, positioned all the way through kind of Belarus. So this is a complex, multi-vectored threat to Ukraine that they need to kind of account for. And this is unlikely to be something as limited as it was in 2014, where the Russians were looking to kind of present themselves as not involved and it was separatists. This is likely to inc include much more robust artillery and rocket forces and probably air power if this, this is to unfold. The, the different ranges of possibility on the, like, probably the far extreme is a country cut in half. I think this is a remote, a very remote possibility just in the kind of uh, on the 50-50 coin flip of whether there is a military escalation. This would be, you know, within that kind of uh, 
bracket a remote possibility of a country bisected, the Russians pushing all the way through to the Dnieper River and seizing Kiev. I think there are more likely possibilities of, let's say, a land bridge connecting Russia to Crimea is a reasonable possibility. It also alleviates water issues uh, with regards to uh, and alleviating severe droughts in, in um, Crimea. And I think there's also a good possibility that other major cities could be under threat, uh, like a city like Kharkiv, which is a massive city uh, in the east. Uh, I think these are all within the realm of the possible, given the force structure. And the last thing I'll mention on the force structure is the indications at this point are pretty significant. So all those legit, it's not just the, 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 the actual military might, the infantrymen, the armor units, the mechanized infantry, but the logistics is coming into place also now. So the medical support, the fuel supplies, the kind of maintenance that you would want to, to sustain kind of a longer operation. I haven't seen much in terms of what I would consider holding troops like uh, Russian National Guard troops that would, after the frontline units sweep through, would hold terrain. I, I, that'll be a, another key indicator. And then the fr- finally, the crescendo of preparation of the the Russian population with you know even more significant rhetoric around why Russia needs to go into into Ukraine. Those those last couple of steps haven't been put in place yet, but those would be the things that would unfold in the preceding week or two. And just so that we're clear on this. And the Ukraine military has made significant advances over the years. It's not trivial anymore. But do you have any doubt that in the event of a significant Russian incursion, Russia is capable of doing actually whatever it wants in Ukraine, if if it cares enough to do it? I think that's probably true under the current circumstances. And that has nothing to do with the, the the morale capability uh, or actually the morale and motivation of the Ukrainian military. It has a lot to do with the capabilities. And I think um, what you have is, yes, you have a very large pool of troops, potentially on the order of like 500,000 uh, troops that could be, inclu- if you include all the reserves that could pot- potentially participate in this. That That's a massive amount of force and a high degree of, of casualties that the Ukrainians are going to take and that the Russians would take in their offensive. Uh, and I think there are kind of, oh, the, the term is going to escape me, but the, the kind of troops that you would have and the kinds of paramilitary that you would have in place after the Russians seize terrain, uh, basically like partisans. There's a, there's a better name for it, but I'll just go with that one for now. Little green men. Well, this would be on the Ukrainian side. Oh, I see. I, I see. You mean, you mean Ukrainians left behind the lines. Yes. I think that's right. They're like a national uh, guard of, uh, of sorts. So there's this is likely to kind of not just bear out uh, very quickly. And although the Russians would be, they would be savage in, in the way they would kind of deal with some of these things. Part of the Russian mentality is, you know, being particularly brutal in ending a confrontation is in itself kind of humani- uh, humane because you're ending the conflict more quickly. Last quick point on the capabilities. The Russians have overwhelming air power. They have enormous capabilities with artillery and rocket forces. They have a, a, a capable a ground forces. They have all sorts of enablers with electronic warfare, unmanned aerial vehicles. What the Ukrainians are missing, they're missing much more robust, and this is on the ground uh, uh, ground sphere. So they're missing ro- uh, robust anti-tank capabilities. 
They're missing significant air defense capabilities. These are the things that would likely uh, change the Russian calculus. And also with regards to the fact, the fact that the Russians have a robust naval infantry and amphibious capabilities, they would need some coastal defense capabilities also. And uh, frankly, you know, when we get to it, a provision of some of these capabilities would start to, to, to change Russia's calculus on what kind of casualties they could take. Okay, so I want to I wanna focus on that. You know, I look at this situation and I say, Ukraine, at the end of the day, not a country we're going to go to war for. That's the, the magic NATO line. And Putin knows that. At the end of the day, do we have the, given that, do we have the ability to prevent this? Or is this something that we're going to watch happen and yell about, but is really beyond, you know, in a, in a very traditional sphere of influence kind of great power analysis, it's in their sphere of influence we're going to let it happen. It's just a question of whether we admit it. Yeah, I know that you're taking a provocative position, but let me go ahead and, and uh, address that. So uh, what if we reframe it as, are we willing to go, or instead of, are we willing to go to war with, uh, uh, over Ukraine? Is Russia willing to go to war with the West over Ukraine? That's really the mo- more fundamental issue. Because really, it's more of a question of, whether the Russians believe that this is going to result in a confrontation with the West, which they don't want. They don't want uh, any escalation that goes to thermonuclear war. Nobody wins in that scenario or even a conventional war. So that, that's, that's the opportunity component that we, we've discussed a couple of times. But what if we recast Ukraine not as a uh, country on the periphery of Europe outside of uh, NATO Article 5, framework uh, outside of uh, collective defense architecture and buy into this notion of Russia getting a privileged sphere of influence just because it has like it, it might makes right and it's this is like a 19th century notion what if we recast it as central to our geopolitical competition with both Russia and China in that kind of situation we are willing to do uh, go a lot further definitely go uh way more forward with regards to brinksmanship based on the value of Ukraine. And the value of Ukraine is twofold. One, there is a natural values-based case for Ukraine. It's a democracy. Uh, It's uh, gone to the streets on two occasions when the uh, country was facing democratic reversals. And it's firmly at this point kind of bought into uh, European integration, if not done all of the steps it needed to, to move in that direction. But from a real, from a, a interest-based perspective, it's maybe even more important. And what I mean by that is, if we invent, we we buy into the Russians' own argument about why Ukraine is so important to them, which is it needs to be it's it magnifies Russian power. Ukraine, uh, outside of Russia's orbit and successful, poses an existential threat to the Russian regime, to the Kremlin regime, to Putin's regime, because. You have one population, as far as Putin argues, separated by an artificial border, but they're really one people. Why is Ukraine prosperous and, and uh, Russia languishing? Why do the Ukrainians have enjoy freedoms and the Russians don't? So if you buy into that argument, Ukraine that's made to be successful, that we invest a generation of resources into, and I actually have an article with New York Times that we're going back and forward on, uh, so this will... 
you're you're getting a uh, preview of, of this argument recasting Ukraine in a geopolitical you know framework. Uh, but Ukraine, in much the same way as West Germany made East Germany unviable, proved it to be a failed experiment in the Cold War. Ukraine could do the same thing for Russia. And now, if that kind of make you could see the linkage, direct linkage on competition with Russia. There, question is, how does this impact China? Well, the re- reason it impacts competition with China is there's a legitimate deep concern about the conversion of Russia and, and China at the moment. It's based on regime interest. Both regimes see utility in working together. But in this future that I'm, I'm, I'm laying out for you, after a generation of investment in Ukraine, Ukraine's prosperous, Russia's languishing, what you could, ha- could envision is a, a change of government in, in uh, Russia. In this change of government, it's no longer regime interests that drive Russian calculus. It's national security interests. And all those national security interests are from the East. All those national security interests are from a belligerent rising China. So our investment, making an affirmative investment, we're not containing Russia, we're making an affirmative investment in Ukraine and Ukrainian democracy. We both advantage our competition with Russia, but we also we also have an impact on this holy grail of, of foreign policy, which is driving a wedge between Russia and China, keeping Russia from falling into China's orbit. And that's if you recast it from that geopolitical big picture standpoint, it really changes the stakes in Ukraine. And it really makes a compelling case how far we, we should be willing to go. Now, I'm not arguing that we should go to war. Uh, I'm not even sure if we should put boots on the ground. I don't think that's that would be provocative and maybe elicit the kind of reaction that we don't need from Russia. But giving uh, Ukraine unfettered access to capability, as well as messaging sanctions, it really changes the, the pressure component. And at the same time, we could continue on with engagement where we're talking about face-saving measures and we're talking about off-ramps. And some of those include the ideas of like, you know, providing Russia assurances that we're not going to have ballistic missile defense. This is the latest rhetoric coming out of uh, Moscow. You know, we can't afford to have uh, long-range missiles in in Ukraine. Nobody's thinking about putting long-range missiles, but that's an off-ramp right there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So your basic policy, if Joe Biden called up Alex Vindman and said, what's the policy on Ukraine and Russia, your policy would be sell them anything they want to buy. That's part of it. 
Uh, I think what an ounce of uh, prevention is better than a, a, a pound of uh, response or something of that nature. And, you know, you basically uh, signal to Russia that they're, by saber rattling, by escalating the situation, they're actually precipitating the kind of security dilemma that they want to avoid. The preferred outcome here is one of two things. One is that Russia realizes that the stakes are high and, and backs off and, you know, Ukraine could kind of continue to plot along and make progress as they've been doing. The other outcome that's reasonable is return to status quo, where Russia, you know, doesn't basically, Russia accepts the reality of the situation and, you know, could muck around and Donbass and all these kinds of things and think of other opportunities like uh, Putin is want to do, look for future opportunities. If he thinks the West is decadent and, you know, the U.S. is on the brink of collapse, he could wait until 2024 on the off chance that Trump returns to power and he has a free hand. So you could make it make it clear that, you know, right now may not be the time. There is not the opportunity that he thought existed, you know, to match the, the to, as the counterpart to the need. And I think that's where you, frankly, um, you could make some serious headway with with this particular crisis. All right. So, Dominic, Alex refers here to some of the messaging that Putin is sending abroad regarding his security needs. How is he talking to his own people about this? What's the, if you watched Russian television in Russian, which I think you do, what what is the conversation that the Russian government is having with, with its own population about this crisis sound like? So a lot of these arguments aren't particularly new. A lot of them will extend back to 2007, for those of you who remember uh, Putin's speech at the Munich Security Conference. Uh, but it's really a discussion of red lines and then demanding security guarantees, uh, not assurances, for the end of eastward NATO expansion, no boots on the ground in Ukraine from NATO forces, no missiles in Ukraine, as Alex already pointed out. And those are the kind of key talking points there. You get in some of the more fringe areas still the fire hose of disinformation about a fascist junta in Ukraine and about how it's far right nationalists who are looking to attack the Donbass. That is of key concern just because there is perhaps maybe a scenario in which Russia tries to justify intervention into Ukraine by using a playbook similar to what they did in 2008 in Georgia. Now, the idea that Ukraine would actually attack the Donbass in any meaningful scenario is highly unlikely, uh, but there could be something that could be manufactured on the border. And there was a recent statement from the head of the DNR, the Donetsk People's Republic, Denis Pushilin, that they would ask for help from Russia in the event of any kind of incursion into the Donetsk People's Republic's territory. And just to be clear, the Donetsk People's Republic territory is in fact Russian controlled in all but name, right? So if if the the president of, of the Donetsk People's Republic says he's asked would ask for Russian intervention in the event, that's that's actually a Russian communication, right? 
Essentially, yes. Now the inner workings of these small statelets is something that is really under-researched and doesn't have uh, a lot of good evidence to support how business is actually conducted behind closed doors there for a number of reasons, especially given the difficulty of access for journalists, academics, etc. But these statelets couldn't survive without Russian support. And part of Russia's calculus through this whole process is tangible, plausible deniability. Uh, they want to be able to say that they're not the aggressors in this action, that they're defending Russian interests. And part of that is uh, this ongoing process of giving out Russian passports to people in these occupied territories. Because then under Russia's interpretation of their national security guidance, they can say that they're protecting the interests of Russian citizens beyond Russia's borders. I'd put it this way. If Russia ended its support to the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics, they would cease to exist. So uh, it's, it's Russian-controlled, Russian-backed. Russia provides the backbone. Russia is the driving force behind these regions. Right. I, I just mean when you hear the, the chieftain in Donetsk saying we would ask for Russian intervention, you should hear that as Putin saying, I mean to intervene in the event, right? Correct. Correct. And so I, I guess I'm trying to imagine what the situation is that translates all these tensions into an actual incursion. Is it a manufactured border incident? Is it just a, an unprovoked, you know, one day the tanks roll over? Is it something happens in Donetsk and it's blamed on, on Kiev? What does the flashpoint scenario look like? The flashpoint scenario could be as wide as, uh, as your imagine, imagination can uh, grasp. I think it could be any number of different things. And frankly, uh, you know, it could be as something as simple as the, uh, the troops rolling across the border and then some sort of a fabricated pretext. Or it could be like, you know, bombings uh, in Moscow of apartment buildings, you know, to, to re uh, result in a, a second incursion in Chechnya. It could be any number of different things. What's clear to me is that Putin hasn't quite you know, settled on which kind, which course of actions will, uh, will likely result in, in his desired outcome. Uh, he, if he could achieve what he wants through diplomatic coercion and get the U.S. and the EU and NATO to back off and say, fine, we don't want a war there. You know, uh, what is it going to take? We'll reduce our, our uh, bilateral cooperation. Guess what? That doesn't mean that it ends there. It means that Putin banks what he gets and then he believes he's got a free hand. That means all of this stuff of like, well, but we'll do that. But if you escalate the situation, we will then slap sanctions or something like that. That's going to be meaningless because it's going to be proven hollow. So if he could get what he wants by a hands-off approach from the West, and then he could apply all of the, uh, the, the hybrid warfare, all of the tools he has in his arsenal, munitions in his arsenal, tools in his toolbox to get what he wants, he'll he'll do that. Now, if he doesn't think he could do that, and the ultimate goal is to prevent Ukraine from slipping through his fingers, and he doesn't think that the West is going to respond in a robust way, that is a very likely scenario. And that's why uh, you, you hear all of the experts kind of talk about how different th this is likely to, to unfold in a military manner. All right. We are going to go to audience questions. 
the floor is yours. My question is, if U.S. policy is to avoid war with Russia over Ukraine, but provide extensive affirmative military support to Ukraine, does that not likely provoke Putin to act quickly to blame the West for its provocative actions and present the West with a fatal complete before the military aid has any impact? So, Harry, that's an excellent question, and uh, frankly, something that I've you know I've thought about as I'm writing my New York Times piece and, and making this argument. The bottom line is that the, uh, Putin's objective here is to gain control over Ukraine, and the question is. What is the U.S. to do? What is NATO uh, uh, to do about this? Is the U.S. to basically avoid any risk of uh, escalation whatsoever and cede Ukraine? Or is the U.S. willing to put some skin in the game and assume the risk, recognizing that Russia also has no interest in war? Russia also has no interest in nuclear escalation. And if that's in fact the case, putting skin in the game and sending the message that we are willing to, to go darn far to, to defend Ukraine. We're willing to go darn far because Ukraine is central to our, you know, to our view of the world from a values perspective and even more central to our view of the world from an interest perspective. That is something that's not going, and, and the Russians get that message. They're not just going to arbitrarily choose to go to war. They're looking at opportunities. And in fact, if this opportunity doesn't exist, they'll look for future opportunities. Because again, I think there's a you know a reasonable case to be made that the U.S. is vulnerable internally. You know that you could have a Trump or a Trumpist candidate return in 2024. Other opportunities exist. So the question is, we're not necessarily buying down all risk, and certainly Russia is making the calculation that you know its window of opportunity for Ukraine is is dwindling. It's going to be only harder in the future. But is it risk worth going to war or, or look for a future opportunity? And in my calculation, in my read of the way the Russians will do business, a uh, provision of, of, of this kind of equipment in a thoughtful, metered manner, and with the message that this is just the tip of the iceberg, is not going to be, it's going to be a deterrent. It's not going to be something that's provocative. And the Russians will use uh, look for another opportunity. An anonymous attendee asks, can you please outline how Zelensky has been performing since he got elected? How do people see him? How do other European leaders see him? So I want to amplify this question a little bit, because when Zelensky got elected, there was a lot of excitement in the U.S. government, not shared, of course, by the president, but uh, that's a discussion for a different day. A lot of people like you and Masha Yovanovitch and George Kent and, you know, a lot of people who testified in the impeachment inquiry were very excited about the reform prospects of Zelensky. The sheen seems to be off now, at least somewhat. I'm curious how you assess how he has done and to what extent to the extent there are failures, to what extent they're really his fault. Yeah, that's. I mean, you frankly covered the, the parameters here, but there was great optimism. As a matter of fact, I, I had uh, high confidence that he's going to be elected in the 2019 election, and I put together an action plan on how do we seize all of the opportunities of a brand new president, uh, somebody that uh, you know is earnest and interested in reforms, but uh, untrained and and frankly not a skilled politician. 
or bureaucrat for that matter? And how do we uh, how do we seize that opportunity and help them along? Well, we passed up on that opportunity. You know, we weren't able to implement the, the action plan in, in a large way because of uh, the, the former president uh, initiated a corrupt scheme. If there were, if, if this was going to be a partnership, we needed a partnership in order to realize kind of all the opportunities and potential in that relationship. We were not a good partner. And uh, even now, you know, we have we're probably not a you know, particularly thoughtful partner in assuming responsibility not for what this administration is doing, but for the last administration did to to kind of not allow uh, the relationship to to flourish in the way it should. The thing is, Zelensky has enormous challenges. He has enormous challenges with vested interests, with corruption, with uh, oligarchs uh, that he's 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 trying to face. One of the the things that he's trying to do, you know, why he's he has this competition with Renat Akhmetov is Akhmetov is the richest man in in, in Ukraine. And these oligarchs have a large say in the way the country moves forward, the way the economy moves forward. And he's trying to wrestle away uh, monopolies. Now, he's doing it in an undemocratic way that kind of leads to, to concerns of whether he's himself is trying to posture himself to be an oligarch. But that's that's part of the, the background here. He is still, I would say, a source of significant un- untapped potential. He has not lived up to to all our aspirations, but uh, neither have we. Uh, and we there's a, both both parties have to do more. What I would say is after Biden was elected, though, uh, Zelensky leaned forward and you know in in uh, attempted to engage in a much more ro- robust manner. If the U.S. were to take the posture that I'm advocating for, look at Ukraine as a true strategic investment over the course of decades, we would have a willing partner in Ukraine. And we could make some significant headway with regards to reforms, with regards to anti-corruption, with regards to economic cooperation, including energy cooperation and security assistance. We just need to, you know, recast the relationship uh, and be a little bit more thoughtful um, that the summit that we had this summer didn't set us back, but it didn't really move the issue along on September 1st when when Zelensky and and, uh, Biden met. So, Dominic, I want to ask about an impediment to everything that Alex is talking about here, which is uh, the fact that the Europeans are very invested in the flow of Russian natural gas. And some of that investment is just that, you know, it's winter and it gets cold and you need natural gas to heat things. And some of it is very direct investment uh, in the form of Nord Stream 2. And so I, I I'm interested in your sense of the Nord Stream 2 politics of this and to what extent it actually prevents the formation of, like, we could do all the things that Alex is talking about, but we won't have the Germans with us in doing. So I'm not sure if it prevents us from doing all of those things, but it definitely throws a wrench into how smoothly that can proceed and to how quickly those things can proceed and whether we can actually uh, ensure energy security in Ukraine in the near and middle term future. So the Nord Stream 2 issue is back again within Congress because there's the National Defense Authorization Act and there's these two amendments that uh, Bob Menendez and uh, Senator Reich uh, want to introduce. And one 
amendment from the more democratic side under Menendez is saying that this is going to go to the Biden administration for ultimate decision on whether or not to impose sanctions. And then it will be, come with the criteria that they will not impose sanctions unless Russia meets this threshold by invading Ukraine, toppling the government in Kiev, et cetera, so on and so forth. Uh, the Rish Amendment doesn't have those stipulations and is saying that it's going to be in the hands of Congress to impose these individual sanctions. Some of the concerns being voiced from the Democratic side are that they already have the Nord Stream 2 issue covered with the Menendez Amendment, uh, and that this Reich Amendment is then also suggesting that they're going to hold a vote every 90 days as to whether or not they're going to be imposing these uh, individual sanctions and maintaining them. And that could be an obstruction to further legislation in other areas that we desperately need in the domestic realm. So it's something that's really kind of split along partisan lines when I think, as Alex has spoken on before, support for Ukraine, particularly within Congress, is really not a partisan issue. It, it's traditionally been a strength for bipartisan support and bipartisan legislation. Uh, but now you see some of this partisan toxicity bleeding over into the meaningful movement in that direction. Uh, why these sanctions matter is because the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, if it gets turned on, if it gets approved, could potentially lead to a scenario where Russia can turn off the gas transit through Ukraine. And there's been this non-paper that was leaked recently to Axios, which if it is in fact the real deal in a classified uh, German government document, seems to demonstrate that the Germans wouldn't take that many meaningful steps to prevent some sort of weaponization of energy security from the Russian side directed towards Ukraine. So just on the European side, just briefly, um... I think you're right. There is a, a reluctance and it's around this energy issue. It's around this idea of further degrading relationships with Russia and Europeans are reluctant. But I think, frankly, U.S. leadership could be critical here. If the U.S. buys in to a strategic vi vision of, of uh, Ukraine in competition with Russia and you know make, makes a much more stark interpretation of what can actually be accomplished with Russia, it could lead the way in bringing the, the Europeans around. I mean, it's just the fact of life, this happens on a regular basis. We might not get everything we want, but with U.S. leadership, we could probably get bring around uh, NATO and, and the EU to, to a much more kind of thoughtful position on Ukraine. But we, we need to get kind of the U.S. house in order before we move in that direction. All right. We have another question from a, an anonymous attendee. Have you seen any politicians in Russia, from Navalny to others less oppositionist, saying or doing anything at all to calm tensions to avoid the impression that all Russians would love to impose the country's will on Ukraine? Dominic, get us started. That's a difficult question to answer, just because the opposition in Russia right now is really atomized and has been suppressed and repressed uh, systematically over the course of the last year uh, in a really kind of frustrating and disconcerting way. And this has been a long time going. I mean, having spent time in Russia, discussions of the war in Ukraine aren't necessarily taboo, but it's not something that anybody wants to talk about. And it's something that a lot of people put outside and it's over there. It's not my issue. It's another issue that's going on. It's a civil war in Ukraine. 
And that kind of ties back into this key importance of Russia being able to deliver this message to their domestic audience that they're not directly involved. That doesn't seem to be something that the international community is buying into, but the domestic audience eats that up. And whether or not people can actually come out and resist this, there are individual instances of people protesting. The organizations like Memorial uh, have previously been outspoken when talking about some of the aggression on uh, the border between Russia and Ukraine, uh, but even they are being liquidated now. Uh, and if you go back to 2015, when one of the most prominent members of the opposition movement, uh, Boris Nemtsov, uh, was assassinated, he was assassinated hours after calling for a rally and a march uh, in opposition to the war in Ukraine and Russian involvement in Ukraine, and had been conducting an investigation of the presence of Russian troops in Ukraine. And so those kinds of things are a direct signal to a domestic audience and to any smart, savvy um, opposition leaders that this is an issue that's off limits. Uh, and so for them, when they have so many issues at home that they're trying to address with regards to domestic policy, wading into some of these foreign policy debates is an extremely hazardous issue. And in a lot of cases, it's unreasonable to ask for that kind of uh, solidarity. Yeah, agreed with everything that Dominic said. The only thing I would add is uh, there are people that would like to seize on the issue. Almost certainly there are, there are uh, folks that would like to seize on the issue of, of Ukraine if the opportunity, opportunity presents itself. And it would present itself in a scenario in which there were significant Russian casualties in case of an incursion into Ukraine. I think that is something that the Russians, the Kremlin's deeply concerned about. That could drive Russia's calculus as to whether to even pursue this course of action and something that changes Russia's calculus there and prevents internal instability over casualties in Ukraine, you know, that's a, a pressure point that could uh, be used to de-escalate the situation. We are going to leave it there. Alex Vindman, Dominic Bustios, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Hamza Situ of Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks, it is the holiday season, and we know that you know people that need Lawfare merch for the holidays. You can get it all at thelawfarestore.com. Pens, notebooks, challenge coins, we've got it all, except the socks. They're sold out. No more socks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.